to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Dr. Fred Sheedy is my guest on the podcast today. So Fred is an Usher Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin, interested in macrophage function in health and disease, as well as innate immune training. So Fred has won numerous awards and has been awarded funding from the American Heart Association, Science Foundation Ireland and Enterprise Ireland. And so with that in mind, I'm thrilled to chat with you today, Fred, um, a fellow macrophage and as I have recently discovered, a fellow Taylor Swift enthusiast. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Shake it up. <laughs> Is that, we can put that in in the like jingle at the start <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> um but yeah no thanks Mil, for, for coming on to chat with me today um so I suppose you know uh, thinking about you growing up I think you're from Cork I think I'm right in that oh, um, yeah, you, you, you'll hear it as we go on <laughs> so growing up in Cork you know talk to me like what what were you like and were you interested in science kind of from a young age or did that come a little bit later on no, I was definitely interested in science at a young age. I was the nerdy kid, but I was the cool nerdy kid. My parents invested in this in 1970s Encyclopedia Britannica book and uh, it, it was gathering dust on the shelf with my older brothers and sisters until I came along. So it finally <laughs> got a, a bit of value and I used to pour over that, especially the kind of... Um, sections on space travel and I would just uh, I wanted to be an astronaut I was just imagining my career you know working on a space station on one of these distant planets that was pictured inside in it <laughs> so I was definitely like the, the, the nerdy kid and uh, that kind of spurned my my love of Star Trek which was okay. like had a, a renaissance back in the 90s and uh, I used to get all the toys all the all the books all the VHS tapes and uh, technical manuals I used to be able to explain to my dad as we were going out for our walks like how a warp engine worked so I think he was uh, he, he thought I'd have a career as a, an engineer of some okay. sort after that yeah but obviously then at some point the kind of biology I suppose came into it yeah, so when I started studying, I suppose, science in junior cert, and like I loved chemistry and the physical world, but really I think I started to see that actually, as I say, um, all, all life is really chemistry. And um, it's just this, you know, or, ordered way of uh, chemical structures persisting. And I suppose to borrow from Dawkins that we're all, you know, survival machines or we're molecular machines. So seeing, you know, chemistry in action in life, and um, that really fascinated me and how, how, how that happened. I guess all my, um, my, my questions about the world and how it works started to turn inwards and you kind of see like the answers actually lie within us. So that's kind of um, spurned my passion into going to study biology. And when you were, I suppose, kind of coming up to leave insert and, and going into um, your undergrad, I think you went to UCC, is that right? I did, yeah. Um, we, so how was we, that? I mean, that was great. I did, uh, it was biological and chemical science and you specialised then at 
kind of at the end of your, of your first year, you, you choose kind of what degree you want to go into. And as I said, my dad had this high hopes that I'd be, you know, in the physical science and have a nice, safe job like an engineer. Um, but I really was fascinated by biology. So my compromise was that I'd study like to be a med lab scientist. Okay. which was one of the options from this course. But my, one of my best friends at the time, um, she really wanted to do genetics. So we convinced each other because we wanted to be in the same class as each other. And our arguments were just too convincing. So I ended up studying genetics and she ended up doing med lab science. Really? At the end. So she now... Um, works in microbiology lab down in Chile and of course I ended up doing my undergrad in genetics after that. Oh my god that's gas so was this at the near the end of your your undergrad or before you started? At the end of first year you specialize yeah okay okay okay. pick what degree option you wanted to go into um so we didn't want to be separated we, we've been in all the same classes which never happens in one of these big first year classes that you're in the same like small group with the same person and we were the two people that found each other and everything and we didn't <laughs> want to be separated so we'd spend the whole summer convincing each other you know oh you should do genetics you should do this and uh, it was just <laughs> too, too good in the end so you convinced each other to do the opposite yeah yeah <laughs> And Couldn't convince each other back. <laughs> well, I mean, it worked out well, I feel, for both of you anyways. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's practically running that lab. She's like a QC manager and, yeah, yeah, I'm a lecturer in Trinity. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely worked out well. So I suppose at what point then did you kind of get a, a taste for what a scientist would be like or their life of a scientist? Yeah, so after I graduated, I... I I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I wasn't really sure about research. I think I probably felt a little bit underprepared and and really actually unconfident in that and what it involved. But I was lucky at the time, I think one of Ireland's um, pioneering uh, biomedical scientist is Professor John Atkins, who done a lot of work actually setting up SFI. Um, he returned to uh, UCC to set up a lab there and he took me on um, as a research assistant for the year. So being part of that lab, working with uh, biochemists, microbiologists, um, the APC, Elementary Pharmabiotic Center, as it was known then, was set up around that time. Um, so that really gave me a nice flavor. And actually, what really sold me was I spent a few months in John's lab in America, actually Salt Lake City. In Utah, really? Uh, yeah, in Utah. Yeah, the, the home of, of the Mormons. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was amazing. And... Uh, well, the place was amazing, but also just the, the, the research culture that was there at the university was amazing. And um, I worked with uh, one of John's senior scientists was Dr. Norma Wills, and she really inspired me um, on, on, and sold me on a research career. And I, after that, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. So how long did you spend in, in Salt Lake City then? It's about three months. There for <laughs> I was there for the Patrick's Day um, one year, and um, the people there thought, oh, "Wouldn't it be great if we rang up John back in Ireland and told him, because Utah was a dry state, that your Irish, your junior Irish scientist is after being arrested for getting <laughs> drunk on the Mor- and the Mormon tabernacle." <laughs> Wait, so, so they he- did this, and they did this. They rang up John, pretended like. Uh, I was after being arrested because, you know, typical Irish drunk in, in a dry state got arrested by defaming or defecating the, the Mormon temple. That is so funny. Wait, so you can't drink in Utah? You, uh, it's, it's not that you can't drink. Um, the, the laws would be a, 
a bit more prohibitive, I guess. There's, oh. um, there is pubs actually, and there is bars, and there would be certain rules. I think maybe you have to eat with it. I can't really remember now, but it's like COVID rules. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It was, yeah, it prepared me for what we're living in now or what we're in. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose coming back from that experience, then I know you went on to do a PhD with Professor Luke O'Neill here in Trinity. So how did that come about? And I suppose, how was that experience then? Uh, well, I mean, it was a great experience that uh, it really made me and, and it's really, I suppose, where I found my voice and my, and my confidence. But um, it came from obviously deciding, you know, after my experience in the States, that I wanted to do research and I wanted to do a PhD, but I wanted to do um, it in the area of immunology. I'd been working with people in the APC, but also the Cork Cancer Research Centre um, alongside us there at the time. I knew immunology is what I wanted to do. And I had done some speciality in it in my final year. Mm. So I knew I wanted to study immunology. And in particular, what I really became fascinated about was the, I suppose, the links between the innate immune system and how they can actually drive this you know, very specific adaptive immune response to infection and how the toll-like receptors um, at the time seemed to be like this key bridge between us. And of course, if you want to study TLRs in Ireland at the time, uh, it was really only, only, only Luke's lab was, was the place to go. So I kept, yeah. I suppose, knocking on his door until I wore him down and he said yes and eventually took me on. <laughs> this little uh, lad up from Cork. <laughs> I suppose you had the experience uh, you know, in America, but this is probably, you know, you'd moved out of home, I suppose, to move up to Dublin then. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, a, that, that, you know, there's a lot of things holding me back for a while because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was, I, I used to kind of think, oh, you know, what my family think, what, well, you know, what about my responsibilities to my job or this mentor or that mentor? For a lot, a lot of time, I wasn't thinking about what I actually wanted to do. Mm. So finding the time to find out what that was, was, was so important. And um, then coming to Luke's lab and into the, um, the environment in, in the school and in his lab, that was so welcoming and supportive. That really kind of changed me, both professionally and personally. I think I really found my, my, my voice, I suppose. I, I think a PhD can be quite like a formative experience, but I also think because the, the stage that I'm at now is the, the kind of bridge between PhD and postdoc and and I'm just kind of finding my feet there so I suppose I'm interested to know how you found that the postdoc transition Mm. actually I think that's probably the hardest time in my career anyway so I mean one of the things that I one reason I really love my PhD is why I changed but you know grew professionally and personally as I came out as LGBT at the time and the environment was so supportive and towards that Uh, but then in the postdoc phase I think that's where a lot of the challenges kind of happened I knew because I had a great PhD and a great PhD experience that I wanted to you know build on that and, and go abroad um, but it's not always easy, especially at the time, it wasn't easy for LGBT people. And if you were in a relationship at all, that was um, even more challenging. And I was at the time. So we moved to the States and, you know, it's an extra kind of layer on, t- on top of everything. It's hard for any couple, I think, moving continents mm. at such a young age when, you know, you should be starting a life together. You should be starting a family, maybe building a house. You know, it's a big um, jump to do that for your career and I think to have that extra kind of pressure as an LGBT couple where your relationship might be recognized um, 
in, in the country you're moving to or in the jurisdiction, it puts an extra stress on any on you and on any relationship. You moved to NYU, yeah? Yeah. So I moved to New York, actually. Uh, I like to say that uh, I uh, had to see if I could make it big on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> And and you think, you know, because I'll, I'll get into your kind of research and, and the postdoc and stuff um, a little later on, but do you think you felt like you had to move abroad to succeed in academia or was it something that you just wanted to do personally? I think there's a bit of both, actually. I think we're really lucky as scientists um, to have this opportunity where we can go, you know, worldwide and people recognize our qualifications and our experience and, and want to work with us and that you can get this, you know, you know a different perspective. But I, I, I don't think it should be compulsory in people's careers. And I'd love, especially in Ireland, I'd love if we could build that, you know, research infrastructure where people don't need to go to another continent to get, uh, you know, experience in a new model or a new technology. And they don't have to uproot their whole lives. And I know it's nice if you want to do that. And there are so many advantages to doing it as well. I mean, one of the things I loved, especially about New York, um, they kind of say, you know, America is the melting pot of cultures. But I think it's kind of a place where um, the beauty and the diversity of the world really shows its face. And uh, in the lab and in the floor that I was working on at NYU, there's people from all over the world. And it, it was just so cool. You could go around from bay to bay talking to different people from different countries. I used to try to pick up, you know, pigeon language from all of them, <laughs> how to at least say hello and having some kind of conversation uh, with them all every day. So, I mean, there's advantages to it as well. Yeah. But I don't think it should be compulsory. No, yeah, like I think I, I agree as in in my stage where I'm at now, I, I would really love to go abroad, but I do also feel kind of slightly a, a pressure that you need to move to maybe succeed. But um, yeah, and I, I, like I don't think it should be a geographical thing. I think it's if you're showing the flexibility to maybe expand your skill set, then that's a move, you mm-hmm. know. And I have to join this brain drain across the sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose just kind of touching back on, you know, maybe your experience as an LGBTQ researcher in, in STEM, do you think that that is harder? Or I think at the time, I mean, the world is changing so fast and it's great, can't change fast enough in some ways. Um, so in the last 10 years, we've had marriage equality in Ireland. We've had it at the federal level in the States as well. There's definitely places in the world you would kind of consider and think twice about going. And I remember even being told by, you know, a very senior scientist in Ireland when I'd expressed an interest in maybe going to a university in Carolina. I think it was North Carolina. They were like, don't think you should go south of the Mason-Dixit line. At the time, I didn't even know what that was because I didn't do history in school, but I had to look it up. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> um, so you would kind of think twice about certain things, but I do think the world is changing. I think one of the things also that kind of held me back as well is lack of role models. You know, people always relate to people that are like you. And if you see them doing well, it'll inspire you to do well. I know like for LGBT, it's, it's not something that's always, vi- you know, visible. Mm. So it's, it's something I kind of struggle with now is how to be visible with, you know, but while still being professional from, from something yeah. that you know, isn't totally obvious. Because I would like to, you know, to, to be a role model to people to show you, you can do this and don't let anything hold you back. Um, one of the things I think for me is once I knew who I was and, what I wanted to do, there was nothing then holding me back and I could go mm-hmm. get what I wanted and do what I wanted. So I, I hope 
people would get that as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think like what you're saying, it is there's probably is a bit of a conflict in wanting to be that role model and wanting to be visible, but then not wanting to be maybe over the top you know you know that kind of way or two oh yeah i mean i i can definitely draw the line with being over the top as well at times so. <laughs> well i didn't mean that in any sort of yeah i just mean it's not always obvious you know just yeah these things aren't obvious you know there are some very obvious i suppose minorities and i do think we need to tackle them we need more visibility and then we need, you know, gender balance. We need more black scientists in senior positions. But there are some things that are less obvious. You know, um, it could be cultural background, you know, religion, um, you know, what part of society you're from. So there are these less obvious minorities that we need to somehow make visible and bring on as well, I think. No, definitely. Yeah, I, I think this is probably a good point in our conversation, maybe to bring in your research. Um, and as I said at the start, you know, you're a fellow macrophage enthusiast. Uh, I know you've got a, you've got a jumper on there now with the macrophage. Yeah, on there. Yeah. <laughs> people, can, people can't see, but I can see it and I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, talk to me, I suppose, why macrophages? Yeah, um, so I guess the easiest thing is just maybe give a little bit of a, a background, maybe for any listeners, just about what the immune system actually is. Mm. So um, it's the system in our body that really evolved to uh, fight off microbial infection. So bacteria, viruses, worms. But we now also know that uh, it plays a much more central role um, regulating a lot of processes in our body, like growth, repair, uh, an injury and then this goes wrong then in a lot of diseases so it can either um, go into overdrive or not function at all and this is where diseases like cancer or arthritis or autoimmunity um, kick off one of the you asked like why macrophages one of the ways in which the, the immune system does is has these special cells that are going around looking for danger signals uh, and instruction repair uh, in the body and macrophages are one of these key cells so they're the kind of sentinel or patrolling cell of our immune system so the pac-man <laughs> um the pac-man cell of our immune system they like to go around and eat things uh, and, and most importantly one of the things that they've really kind of evolved to kind of eat and degrade is um infection so the particular kind of infection that my lab studies is uh, one of the most ancient uh, infectious diseases uh, to humanity, tuberculosis or TB. And uh, that's really kind of grown. Uh, one reason it's such an ancient pathogen that we haven't really kind of eliminated yet is it actually has grown to infect macrophages themselves. So this key cell that should be there, that should exist to take out the TB, um, it's actually hijacks that cell and takes it over and kind of blocks that kind of key uh, function to, to to degrade the bacteria. And at what point in your career, because I know you did your PhD with Luke, uh, I think microRNA, TLRs, and then you, I know you went over to New York, but at what point did the, the TB research come in? Was that when you moved back to Trinity or where did the, that interest begin? Yeah, so that actually came, uh, well, I started properly working on TB when I, I moved back to Ireland and I worked with uh, Joe Keane, who's now, who's uh, up in James's and is a kind of key like um, respiratory and TB doctor there. Um, but the interest in it, 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 it had been kind of brewing for a while. So I, when I went to the States, I was working on inflammatory disease and actually atherosclerosis and um, lip, lipid metabolism. 
and how um, consumption of high-fat diets leads to kind of chronic inflammation throughout the body. But one of the things I became really fascinated with was what we were studying was how macrophages become engorged with lipids in these conditions like atherosclerosis or obesity. And they're trying to eat up these, these lipids and they don't really get rid of them. They just kind of become packed to the brain with them and various things go wrong there. But one of the other cases where that happens is actually in the TB granuloma. Um, so that's this collection of cells that forms inside the, the, the lung that kind of walls off TB after infection and walls off infected cells there so it doesn't spread throughout the body. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons why people can have TB but not actually be sick is you might have this granuloma going on in your lung. It could be exist there silent for years. You'll never even know you've been infect, infected, but it could reawaken years later. And that's one of the reasons um, that's why TB has really persisted as a pathogen. But inside in that granuloma, there's these lipid-laden cells and they're macrophages. So they've also been infected with TB. People still a mystery why uh, these infected macrophages have this um, big, uh, become engorged with lipids, have this big lipid phenotype. And that's really what interested me in my postdoc um, back in the States. And I was like, this is something, you know, I can really work on. And um, I think and I really wanted to work on infection again. And I was really fed up with sterile inflammation. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to work on. And so I really wanted to work on infection again. And I just thought, yeah, TB is where it's at. So I came back to, to Joe's lab. And the whole idea there was that I'd kind of pursue this lipid question based on my expertise in atherosclerosis and obesity. Um, but actually what happened at the time is uh, this whole area of immune, immune cell metabolism or immune metabolism kicked off. And we actually became much more uh, kind of obsessed with with actually glucose and how glucose can actually fuel the macrophage response to infection. And that's something we had much more success in in the last years. It doesn't mean I still don't love lipids and still don't want to work on them. <laughs> yeah, well, I think because, you know, I think Trinity has become quite a hub for immunometabolism and there's quite a lot of researchers doing some brilliant work in yeah. TBSI and in James's. So, you know, maybe talk to me a little bit about what immunometabolism is or what your how your research fits into that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're so lucky in Trinity that we have so many brilliant investigators in this area and people worldwide say this to me all the time. So we're really so lucky to be working alongside them all. Um, so immunometabolism really, I, I think, is kind of really the study of what immune cells eat and what fuels all these important functions that they take on to fight infection or to keep the body kind of ticking over normally. And um, so what we've actually realized is, uh, you know, most cells get their energy from sugar, from, from, from glucose and burning that up to create ATP uh, in, the, in these normal pathways. But actually immune cells adopt these kind of more alternative types of metabolism. They can burn that sugar in different ways or they can acquire this kind of preference for different fuels. And that can be lipids, amino acids, various things. And they need this to fuel their effector functions to make molecules to fight bacteria, to make a hostile environment against bacteria or viruses, um, to help with breaking down those viruses and promoting antigen presentation and uh, various other functions of the adaptive immune system, which I know nothing about <laughs> uh, <laughs> feedback. And, and they have these various preferences as well. 
So that's really, I think, what immune metabolism is. But it's also, I think, the study of how systemic metabolism, so, um, you know, our, our response to nutrient, nutrient intake uh, is regulated at the physiological level and then how that impacts immune cell function as well. And that's actually something I really kind of want, want to do more in um, how, for example, conditions like diabetes or obesity can impair how our immune system normally responds to infection. So one thing, and this again, this is one of the reasons that I work on TB is one of the things we've noticed, there's, there's a lot of, I suppose, risk cofactors for TB. And of course, a major one of them is HIV infection and depletion of T cells. But a real emerging one is actually what we call TB diabetes, the co-occurrence of diabetes. So a lot of people are wondering what's going on in diabetics that they're more susceptible to TB or to TB granulomas uh, reawakening. So I think that's another important aspect of um, immune metabolism, how the systemic kind of metabolism impacts on immune cell function as well. It's kind of like a, you know, you are what you eat, I suppose. Uh, I use that line all the time. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> We're on the same page. The other, the other way then, I guess, uh, that my, the other kind of aspect of, of my lab's work in the last few years, which fits in with this you are what you eat, is um, there's been a, a lot of interest really in this new concept in immunology, uh, so-called innate immune memory or trained immunity, this idea that our innate immune cells like the, the Pac-Man, the macrophage, can have these memory-like features. And these can be um, you know, instructed by previous encounters so that, such that if they go on and survive that infection, they'll actually work better to fight off other invaders uh, later on. And so there's a lot of interest in, it. one, if this actually occurs and if this is a long last effect in, in our bodies. And secondly, then what can actually drive that, what, you know, challenges, what infections can drive this memory-like phenotype. One of the big things that actually emerges, the BCG vaccine actually seems to have these non-specific effects that can be attributed to driving this innation in training. Um, the BCG vaccine, sorry, it's is against TB. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the BCG vaccine is the, or oh, it's actually 100 years old, I think, last week. One of really? the oldest vaccines, yeah, um, for, for TB. Um, it's actually one of the most least efficient of all the vaccines, however. Oh. Um, so it's really good at protecting against childhood TB, but that protection kind of wanes. Um, so, you know, if you're infected as an adult, it mightn't make a difference if you've been BCG vaccinated or not. So we're always trying to come up with a more specific and better vaccine than BCG. And so far, there's been a lot of candidates, but none of them actually supersede BCG in various different trials. Uh, one of the good things then about BCG is there has been a lot of studies of its non-specific kind of effects, and uh, uh, people notice that in uh, BCG vaccinated children, um, I think in Africa, but also I think in, in Northern Europe and in Asia as well, they were kind of protected against other infections. So um, there was in a lot of these studies they call it a, a, a reduction all-cause mortality. So people. Are, looking now if some of this you know protective effects was through driving innate immune training and priming the function of our innate immune cells to respond better to just all infections uh, to get back to what my, my lab is doing uh, that's one of the examples of, of something that drives trained immunity but um there, there's lots of other kind of examples emerging now so one thing is 
we've been doing is working with a lot of kind of local and international food companies to see if this you are what you eat thing can be applied because another one of the things that um, is really good at driving this uh, trained immunity effect is these molecules that are present in the cell walls of many organisms from uh, fungi to algae to even plants they have various types of these molecules called beta-glucans so we're working with various sources of beta-glucans to see if they drive innate immune training and if we can use this to kind of support better responses against infection like TB. So I suppose the idea would be that if you could identify a particular beta-glucan that you could expose our immune system to, then potentially we would confer resistance to a number of infections or would it be TB-specific? Well, the idea would be that... um, this is a non-specific effect, but if, if it could be applicable, you know, in areas where TB is endemic, it could, you know, help bring the, the, the numbers down. And TB is one of the, well, until last year, was one of the biggest killers of any infectious disease. Um, and I, I mean, we were getting the numbers down bit by bit over the last few years, but I think that will level off or start to rise again with the kind of um, reduced uh, accessibility to healthcare after COVID. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we can apply this to, to, to probably because it's such a non-specific effect, it could be applied to um, just keeping your immune system kind of, I suppose, taking over and, and, and functioning in general. And I thought, um, you know, because I had Dr. Shari Bazeo on in season one, so she was speaking about TB as well. And just what you're saying there that, you know, TB was um, kind of up until recently, most highly infectious diseases in in the world. I I was kind of shocked by that because I just thought TB was kind of gone, which was very naive. But I think I I wasn't aware that TB was such a huge problem anymore, you know. Yeah, well, it's been a scourge of mankind for centuries, and we actually think the bacteria kind of co-evolved with us as we kind of started practicing agriculture. And like, originally, it was the soil bacteria that infected cattle and then transferred over to humans. So it's been a scourge for many years. And of course, in Ireland, even 100 years ago, there was TB sanatoriums. And then, of course, we, we developed BCG, but we also developed antibiotics. And, and just better public health care as well and understanding, I suppose, of how it spread um, led to, uh, you know, a big reduction in cases. But um, it's still rampant worldwide. It's still rampant in um, sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. And uh, the problem with all these things we've implemented in, I suppose, in the developed world over the last century is that our, our time is running out and all of them. There's multi-drug resistance to antibiotics emerging. As we know, BCG isn't the best vaccine. It gives some protection, which is important, um, you know, in early life, um, but that wanes. And of course, all this coupled with um, what I kind of said earlier, that TB actually can infect us and hide out in these granulomas and ho- hold this silent potential to reawaken you know, means it's never actually gotten gotten rid of and um, could come back at any time. And, you know, the, the kind of work that you're doing with the beta-glucans, that is with, I think, um, the Kerry Group and you've got, I think, is there Monaghan Mushrooms running there as well? So how has that been, yeah. I suppose, working with different industries like that and, and different food groups? Um, well, I think it's given me a really kind of different perspective on what we do and how what we 
do can actually be applied and actually some of the grants that I've wrote on this I think have been some of the best grants I've ever written because one of the things I always struggle with with grants is explaining impact of what we do but when you actually start to apply what you're working on to a very specific problem or a very specific task um, you can actually see that impact a lot better so I like the different perspective that that I've got from this and it is quite different from you know a lot of the, the other work that we've been doing you know in the past which is quite disease specific it's really i suppose changed the um the tone of our research that we're now kind of looking at you know this idea of immune health in general which kind of sometimes is, is a bit of a misnomer because the immune system responds to to challenges and threats so how do we define a healthy immune system yeah. in an uninfected or unchallenged person? It's quite difficult. Um, so it's definitely a different perspective. But it's been great to work with so many dif- different people and um, a few more projects hoping up, um, coming up that we hope will get funded as well to expand the repertoire of the beta-glucans that we're looking at. All starts growing in the lab. There'll be mushrooms, <laughs> there'll be yeast, there'll be algae, there'll be plants, there'll be everything. You're going to turn into a botany lab now before you know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I suppose, you know, thinking about academia, looking back on, on your journey, well, firstly, I'll ask you, you know, what, what do you love most about academia or what do you look back on as, you know, that was great. Like that was a that was a great day. I'm so happy I've I've chosen this career um, and I'm, you know, I really want to continue it. And then once you answer that, I'll ask you about the, the negatives, I suppose. So start with the positives first. Okay. So what I love most uh, I think definitely changes on your career stage and you know when I was a PhD student postdoc I was definitely making discoveries in that moment in the darkroom when you turn on the light and you see that that band has appeared and everything's worked um, and and the way that that kind of counteracts all those negative days and, and uh, unhappy days in the, in the darkroom and we've had a, a different experience but now I think one of the things I love most is I suppose helping and mentoring others and seeing them grow as scientists. And this could be anything from students that come into us at you know, junior soft level and seeing their growth and their journey, even in the space of a year, is actually really, really rewarding. But also, you know, students in my lab and, and postdocs and seeing them grow and, and actually take on something new and then become masters of it is probably what I like the most about what I'm doing now. In terms of what days do I look back on and go, that was the day. <laughs> um, so there's definitely a, a few memories and they, they generally kind of overlap with the days. You know, you've heard about a big paper being accepted. Um, like like the, the way they say, oh, God forbid I use this analogy, you always know you are, where you are the, the day you heard the news about Diana or JFK. Yeah. I always remember where I was, you know, the, the days I heard about, you know, some of my big papers uh, being accepted. And for some reason, they were always when I was traveling and I don't travel that much. So I really <laughs> think I should travel more. Maybe it's a lucky omen or something. <laughs> yeah, but it's always when I'm completely switched off and I get this message and I'm looking at it going, what does this mean? <laughs> um, so one particular, I was in Berlin and it was just after I'd um, finished my PhD and we'd, been, we'd submitted the paper that summer, submitted my thesis. So my partner at the time took me to Berlin to uh, go to see um, my favourite artist, Tori Amos, in concert. She's slight, she slightly uh, wins over Taylor Swift <gasps> and <I'm> free Megan. <laughs> If I'd known that, well, if I'd known that, you wouldn't have been on this podcast. (laughs) 
uh, we were sitting down and then I got this message on my phone from Eva in, in Luke's lab, the postdoc in Luke's lab saying, it's in. And I was wondering, what she, what's in? <laughs> my thesis? Uh, I, I couldn't figure it out. It took me ages to actually think what she was on about. And yeah, the, our paper that we'd submitted to Nature Immunology and we'd gone through you know, a heap of revisions that wow. summer and had been accepted. So uh, it was those kind of days. And then the most recent one of those was when I, I think I got the position in Trinity uh, as a lecturer and to come back to the school that, you know, had done so much for me. I was just so happy and so delighted. Big and do you find, you know, because what kind of strikes me from doing this podcast series is that once people get to a PI level, you're not no longer kind of just a pure scientist. You have to be a mentor. You have to be a teacher. You know, you're lecturing. You kind of nearly have to be a counsellor because you've got PhD students coming in all the time being like, this didn't work. I don't know what to do. So how did you find that? Do you mind those kind of challenges? Yeah, I mean, they're challenges, but they're good challenges. Um, but it, yeah, I think that is one of the more difficult times um, or, and things about, you know, when you do translate to becoming a PI, you start to take on a lot more roles and um, wear a lot of different hats at the same time. And um, like in some ways, I was definitely underprepared for that because, you know, you come to as a researcher and, you know, that's all you're really excited about having your own lab, leading your own program. Then all of a sudden there's these teaching responsibilities, mentoring responsibilities, administrative responsibilities. And it definitely takes a while to learn how to balance them all. Mm. And I'm definitely still learning how to balance them all. One of the things that did become kind of apparent to me early on is that it's, it's actually a tremendous responsibility I'm actually really lucky to be in this position where I can influence and help others. And, you know, for all the problems I may have identified in the system, I'm now in a position where I can actually change that and, and make the system better. So I think we can you know, turn that negative in, in, into a positive somehow. I, I've heard that kind of from other other researchers, I suppose, throughout the podcast as well. But yeah, it kind of, I feel like it's, like I'm talking about the transition between PhD to postdoc, I feel like postdoc to PI is seems quite a quite a scary transition as well. Even though obviously at the time it's what you want, you know. Yeah, I, I know. I said the most difficult time is I think when you're a postdoc, and maybe even moving from like a first postdoc to a second postdoc is difficult in terms of identity because you're trying to distinguish yourself and carve out your own kind of niche, but. The, the transition into becoming a PI, what I actually say about that is it's actually the loneliest time of your career because previous to that, you're in a lab, you're in a group, you friends every day, and then you, you move to going into your own office every day. And, you know, you don't have these peers, you know, yeah. you know someone who is your peer that sat across the bay for you, from you and your PhD is gone and all of a sudden you're there on your own and there's probably no one else at the same level as you in the department so you know it can be actually quite a, a lonely time yeah god I, I didn't think of that I suppose you don't really have the shared experiences of other people around you yeah 
Yeah, and that's why good mentoring is actually really good. And we're actually really lucky on the, the program that I was on. You know, there was 40 of us recruited at the time, the, the, the ushers, and we were all assigned very senior uh, mentors. And I was really lucky <laughs> who I got as my mentor, <laughs> Professor Clino Farley, of course, he okay. interviewed already and like has won mentoring prizes by, by oh, nature. Yeah, you couldn't get a better mentor there. Oh my God. No, no, and friends actually now. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think but also the, the program we recruited there was 40 of us recruited across the college and you know there was various development workshops put on for us and one of the best things about it all wasn't always the workshops it was meeting other people at your stage and and, and getting very different perspectives as well and I suppose you know looking at the kind of things in academia that might frustrate you uh, well, no, because uh, I was definitely going to add to the last point, like one of the hardest things I think is, well, how we're doing science is changing quite a lot. Sometimes, not that it's harder to do science, because I think it's actually easier to do science. It's harder to almost produce. Everything is so metric oriented now. Uh, you know, it's all about publications. It's all about grants. Uh, I do think a lot of systems have to take all the things into consideration as well. But even like to to do a paper and to, to write a paper or to have a paper accepted, you must almost have this complete story, you know, mechanism, uh, different models where it's, uh, that it's applicable to, you know, human, mouse, X, Y, Z. There's so mm-hmm. much required, like gone are the days of maybe two author papers where you're making an interesting observation that can be disseminated with the world to then take and build on. Yeah. Now, I, I think the system needs some bit of a, of a rebalance it's also really expensive to do that kind of science as well. And if you're not in a really well-funded lab and if you're starting out, you're at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, you know, even kind of techniques like single-cell RNA-seq, you know, stuff like that. I feel like it's like nearly every paper has it now. It's like a prerequisite yeah. from, from yeah. what I'm seeing anyways. Oh, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know... And then if you're not okay with that or you don't have the, the box to bang that out, you, mm. you get left behind. So that's definitely something. I don't think it needs to change. I actually think for those kind of things, we need to make those technologies more accessible yeah. because they are great technologies. Um, but I think some, there's just something about the system that, that needs to change. Actually, one of the most unfortunate things about our system is it rewards excellence, but to reward excellence, you know, there has to be competition. And I just wish the system was set up so there wasn't so much competition so that everyone could have, a, you know, mm. a piece of it. And, and I make the, the, the Buffy analogy, <laughs> not to spoil the series, but one of the things I loved about the end of Buffy was that, you know, she was always the chosen one that had this power. But in the end, she ended up sharing her power with everyone else. I, I just wish there was a way that everyone could have that power, that, you know, opportunity that, you know, it's not so exclusionary. I mean, I don't, I, I do really like that. And as, you, as you're talking there, what's coming to mind is, you know, that scene in Mean Girls when she's like, I wish everyone, we could go back to middle school and everyone like, you know, was really nice to each other. I'm like, I don't, I do think that's lovely, but I don't know if that will happen. You know, that kind of way. I'm not sure if that, that can happen. No, no, I mean, it can't because, you know, there has to be an element of competition. But one of the things I think I'd like to change is I know it's difficult in a small country, so you have physicists 
competing with biologists, immunologists, for example, for the same pot of money, that if there was more specific calls or something like that, so that, you know, everyone kind of got a share of it. And I know it's all dependent on funds, but I do think there can be fairer systems um, set up. And you see, you mentioned there about Mean Girls. That's my other pet peeve, that so much about science is about being, I think, skeptical Mm. and questioning things. And that's really important. I mean, it's especially important when you're designing your experiments and, you know, testing your hypothesis. But you have to be able to kind of leave it at that and, and not bring that into the personal relationships as well. That, you know, it can be counterintuitive to be really, you know, skeptical of something professionally, but still be really supportive of someone at the same yeah. time. Um, and I know, I think sometimes my lab look at me and you probably wouldn't think it, but I'm actually a wagon in lab meetings because really? <laughs> I just can be so blunt and say, that's not right. That's not how you do it. Um, but it's, you know, just trying to, uh, you know, I can't, I make can't the best. That. <laughs> well, you can ask some, <laughs> give <laughs> some names, <laughs> but I think like that's important, but to do it in a constructive way. Because so much of what we do, there's so much rejection, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, grant applications, job applications, papers, things like that. And even experiments not working, going into the darkroom and you're getting a blank blob back. You know, there's so much rejection and pushback. Uh, I just think we need to counter that, you know, somewhat a a bit better. Um, And I suppose you're in Dublin now, you know, you're uh, Usher lecturer in Trinity. Do you ever think you'll return to Cork or do you think Dublin has you? Uh, I do think it. I do think it a lot. Um, and I've, I was actually really lucky, like during the lockdown, I spent a lot of time at home um, just because we were able to work from home. So I, I headed off to Cork. Yeah. Um, and I, I do love it. And I still have lots of friends and family down there. I, I do love Trinity as well. And I think if you want to study immunology in Ireland, not to say anything bad about anywhere else, but, you know, our department is one of the best places to be and to work in immunometabolism, as I mentioned. Yeah, but, but I wouldn't rule it out. You never know. <laughs> I get the, the Rebel jersey on me again yet. But I never took it off. <laughs> um, and I suppose, Fred, you know, kind of one of my last questions for you is if you weren't a scientist and if your life hadn't turned out how it has, what do you think you'd be doing right now? I would most definitely be a writer, probably a scriptwriter for some fancy TV show that's on Amazon Prime or Netflix. Yeah, so that's my passion. Uh, as I said, I was really into Star Trek and all that stuff growing up. And I think what I really loved about that was all the world building that was going on. And that really inspired me to you know, create my own worlds. And actually, I used to write my own Star Trek stories or <laughs> theories really? or, or four. <laughs> And I actually have all the, I actually have all the copy books and folders. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I have. Yeah. Um, so you know, if 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 anyone in Paramount Pictures is listening in on this, and they're simply banging out a new Star Trek series by the new time, I've got the thing ready to go here. We always have so many listeners but, uh, in yeah, from, so love, from Paramount. <laughs> they're they're yeah. always they're always listening in. So yeah, no. I'd say. Oh, they have they have proper scientific advisors on all these shows. If if you watch them at all, like some of the things they come out with are really based on uh, on real science. So you know, maybe. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no, I loved like telling stories and, and writing in various different ways. And 
not not just like writing like scripts I, I would write like poetry songs things like that as well and I still do that a little bit as well and um it, no it's never something I've actually published or kind of shared with the world yeah and I don't think that's because I'm afraid to I think it's because I'm actually such a perfectionist I would want to have something really perfect before I released it to the world and um, maybe one, one day. day soon I'll have my popular science book yeah, yeah. D- definitely yeah. I can take a I can take a sabbatical um I think you know that kind of having the flair for writing probably helps in science as well to some extent so it's writing papers and I know it's a different style of writing but you know what you would imagine yeah and people say that to me all the time that oh are you such a good writer because um you know you wrote a lot growing up but actually I really struggled at the beginning of my PhD with scientific writing and um, because I was so used to floral ways of writing and telling stories and, you know, very specific details and stuff like that. So actually, I mean, I was really lucky with Luke and um, as my mentor and Catherine, uh, Catherine Moore, who was my postdoc mentor, they were brilliant writers. And I learned so much from them really about scientific writing. So actually, I don't know if it helps having that uh, uh, creative influence um, so I was going to say, it's, it's really funny that you say that because when I was growing up, I was quite, quite into fictional writing and stuff. And I used to like a writing group at home. So I was quite into kind of what you're talking about, writing stories, poems, etc. And when I when I started writing papers in Ursula's lab, <laughs> she'd be like, get away with this flowery writing. <laughs> and like I'd have words yeah. that, that weren't appropriate because I suppose the way I would have written it would have been like, you know, a story, I suppose, but scientific writing is yeah. like that. So she always slags yeah. me about putting in the word plethora, which I put in everywhere. And uh, I'm maintaining that that is my word and I'm going to keep it in there. But uh, yeah, she always, I even <laughs> write, in my, write in my thesis, there was a lot of like, you know, maybe we should rephrase. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you, need, you, you need to write a review with, with a plethora in the title. I do. I definitely do. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm a big one also for a, a pun in, in the titles or in a, a secret pun in there. I'm yeah. not sure if anyone ever gets them hidden away like an <laughs> Easter egg. But uh, but for those who do, <laughs> then it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but listen, Fred, it's been absolutely great to chat to you. And thank you so much for I suppose, taking the time to come on and talk to me today. Thanks very much. It's been lovely, Megan. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.